Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm good. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, we lament the demise of indie music news and review site Pitchfork, which has been gutted by the higher-ups at Condé Nast and moved under the GQ banner. I'll be honest, I am not really a Pitchfork reader. Uh, I checked out the occasional review, but music has never really been where my critical interests reside. Though I do, through osmosis, get a lot of chatter about pitchfork and what it means in the broader culture that it exists or doesn't exist or has changed, is doing certain things, is not doing certain things, is covering certain things, is not covering certain things. I'm I'm fascinated, as always, by the conversation about the thing more than the thing itself. Uh, luckily, we do have a pitchfork reader here to discuss the rise and fall of the online music mag. One Peter Suderman, uh, he has lots of thoughts. I think in, in our chat, he said he could do a 20-minute monologue on the topic. I don't know that we need to do that, but I, I do have questions for him. I got a lot of questions. Uh, he has thoughts. I'm just going to let him unload for a little bit uh, with a very basic, broad question. Peter, what happened to Pitchfork? So the thing that happened to Pitchfork is that a bunch of journalists lost their job and that one of the most important outlets for um, sharply observed, interestingly written pop culture criticism of the last 25 or 30 years has basically been gutted and effectively shut down. Yes, there is still going to be something called Pitchfork that exists under the banner of GQ, but Pitchfork has existed since the mid-1990s. I believe it launched in 1996. And Pitchfork, as we know it, the brand, the publication, the thing that has been really a daily part of my life. Not quite literally every single day without exception, but pretty close. It is among the publications that I have read most often in my life, I think, certainly as an adult. I started reading Pitchfork just about every day in the fall of 1999, which was when I was a freshman in college. And it was just tremendously influential on not just my music consumption, although certainly that, but on my ideas about what criticism uh should be, could be, uh, how it could affect the world, how it could sort of shape and change people's perceptions of pop culture. Uh, and and then even more than that, Pitchfork was a big influence on me in terms of how I thought about building a, a kind of a niche publication brand. Because Pitchfork was very big on the on the one hand, but it was never the New York Times. It was never even really Rolling Stone at its peak, although in some ways it rivaled Rolling Stone's level of influence on the thing, the specific thing that it was commenting on, but it was never quite that big. It was never this sort of huge cultural juggernaut, but within the, the realm of internet music fandom, from the late 90s through, well, you know, last week, Pitchfork was by far the leader. That was the place where you went to find out what was in, what was out, what was cool, what wasn't. There was certainly a line of criticism of Pitchfork that, oh, it was too it was too cool, too stylish, too sort of snotty. That's fair in some ways here and there, but I don't think that's fundamentally like a, a legitimate criticism of, of Pitchfork. Like what Pitchfork was doing was establishing an orthodoxy. And that inevitably means saying, we're right, you're wrong sometimes. And what Pitchfork was very good at, especially in their early days, was actually was taking stuff down. Uh, in fact, the recommendation, I still remember one of my, one of my hardcore music friends from high school uh, who was like, all we did together was play music 
and listen to music and go to shows and talk about music. That was pretty much our whole lives from, you know, this is a guy I met in fourth or fifth grade. And he sent me a link to a Pitchfork review in when I was in college with just like a, a little note about how they were so mean. And that was in some ways the selling point, but they were also so smart. They knew everything. I remember when they had an advertisement for writers where they were hiring at one point. This was probably like 2003 or something like that. One of the questions they asked was just, how many records do you think you have owned in your lifetime? The clear expectation that the number was going to be well into the thousands back when people were shelling out 15 or 20 bucks per CD. And so that was Pitchfork, and that was Pitchfork at its inception. And of course, it appealed to a very, to a fairly specific type of person who in some ways resembles me, right? Like college educated, like kind of nerdy, kind of obsessive music, you know, like really hardcore music nerds. And frankly, uh, a lot of dudes, a lot of dudes, right? Um, and so that inevitably created some controversies uh, starting, I want to say around 2010, maybe 2012. Uh, there was a big uh, sort of internet wide uh, kerfuffle about Pitchfork that asked the question, why did Pitchfork review the Ryan Adams cover album of Taylor Swift songs? and never review Taylor Swift. And then there was this whole like recrimination session and discussion about like the dudist, the, the sort of dude centricness of, uh, of music criticism and of Pitchfork in specific. Um, some of which I think was totally fair and accurate. Like it just is true that the people who are like in by far, like the, the consumers of that form of kind of very mean, uh, kind of very erudite, super obsessive music criticism, the producers and the consumers tended to be dudes. It was just dude heavy. Uh, and you can say like, well, you can say, well, that's that's not good or it, you know, it's fine or it's just sort of how things are. But like that was sort of the reality of it. And Pitchfork grew and became much more than just a reviews site, though at the beginning it was really like the last couple of years, it has become known as much for news as for reviews. And part of that is clearly an editorial decision where they have forefronted news about musicians much more than reviews, even though they are still doing or still have been doing. A typical week is going to have at least a dozen new album reviews. But Early on, it was basically just reviews. There was almost nothing else. The, the news section was added, I don't know, a decade in, maybe even after that um, at some point. And so so it, like it's really the core and the origin story, the heart of Pitchfork has always been record criticism. And I, I love criticism. I mean, I, even my, the first form of journalism that I actually really loved and consumed was movie criticism. I was not like a big reader of front page news or even opinion columnists when I was 14, but boy, did I read every single movie review I could get my hands on. And of course, I also was a music junkie. So then when I found Pitchfork and it was like four record reviews every single day, oh my goodness, like this was, this was the site for me. And so the first answer to your question, what happened is a bunch of journalists lost their jobs, uh, which is just always a shame. And I, a bunch of critics lost their jobs, frankly, like which is even more of a shame because that's probably at this point I don't know if it's literally the single hardest job to keep in journalism right now, but it's certainly one of them is full-time critic. And we are just losing full-time critics hand over fist. And it's always a shame when that happens. I'm, I'm never like happy about that in any way. But part of what has happened is that Pitchfork has changed over the years. And they have changed in ways that have not been true to the audience that 
the site was built on and was developed on. So I All right, just wanna... so let me, I, I just want to jump in here because this is, this is where, when I say that I follow the conversation about the thing, this is uh, how the conversation about Pitchfork has looked for the last, like, frankly, five, maybe 10 years. Uh, like, it's, it, it is always some variation on Pitchfork did a thing and now they do a different thing that is more influenced by what is known as poptimism, right? The the argument, the argument that I have heard from former fans of Pitchfork or uh, even even current fans who like it because it has changed, is that they have where they were once the scourge of the poptimists and said no, pop music is bad or we're not going to lower our standards for pop. You know, just because it's popular, that doesn't mean it is good. Now it has shifted and has become more aligned with the poptimist argument. Is that accurate, inaccurate? How, what, what, from your perspective as a daily reader? That is very much true, but it's also because pop has changed. And so again, think about when Pitchfork started in the late 1990s. What were the pop bands of the era? It was a lot of bubblegum pop, NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys, uh, you know, early Britney Spears. And while there's probably been uh, some revisionist criticism of actually, you know, actually those folks were really quite good. A lot of that stuff was not very good and not even in some ways it was intended to be highly competent at what it was doing, but it wasn't intended to be particularly interesting or lasting art. And then you get to the late aughts, the, the late, you know, 2008, 2010, a decade or, or 15 years ago. And you start to see Beyonce doing stuff that's really actually quite interesting in the pop music form. I think even more, even before it starts, even before pop starts to become, starts to do some of this, you really start to see hip hop, which for, you know, when I was in high school, you could uh, you could like flip through some of the rock magazines and find pages of like shirts and even frankly like weird necklaces and stuff that were that you could just like emblazon on your on your chest. I hate rap. This was a sign that you were like a rock guy and that that was your thing. That's how you defined yourself. And in retrospect, that was really pretty dumb. You start to see in probably I think really around two thousand five is where it started, but then even more so over the next decade after that. Critics start to catch up with this fact that that's a dumb way to approach music and that's and that there's a huge amount of innovation and sonic uh, complexity and like just like totally just really interesting culture coming out of the world of hip hop and rap. And we can talk about Kanye West, who has obviously his personal problems now, but go back and look at 808s and Heartbreak or, you know, my beautiful, dark, sweet, twisted fantasy, just as pieces of art. They are utterly incredible. And Pitchfork took notice of that, I think, correctly. And that was good. I think even earlier, really. I mean, I feel like, you know, I, I never read Pitchfork as religiously as you did. And I think I had a more complicated relationship to the site in that I had been a Rolling Stone reader in high school. And then my college boyfriend and his friends were just hugely cooler than I was. And that manifested primarily. I don't believe like, it. No, I mean, he was cooler than I was. Um, but, and that manifested a lot in just like knowing music about music that I knew nothing about. And I started reading Pitchfork because he read Pitchfork and started listening to bands like The Decemberists and Spoon. And, you know, like, I guess I had already been listening to The White Stripes. But, you know, just like had, you know, Animal Collective, just a lot more of that stuff because, you know, it was what Pitchfork was introducing me to and sort of training me to like. And it was, I've been thinking since Pitchfork pulled it about the period of my life when I was sort of constantly 
on the hunt for new music in a way that I haven't been for a decade. And I miss that to a certain extent. Um, but Pitchfork was really good at explaining like what the Decemberists were doing sonically was interesting. Like I felt like Pitchfork taught me to be much better about listening for the sort of distinct roles an instrument played in a song. Um, if you could get over the attitude or come to enjoy the attitude, it in a lot of ways provided a really solid education in how to listen to rock and specifically sort of the kinds of rock that were very culturally ascendant then. And like Spoon is still one of my favorite bands. Like, you know, seeing Britt Daniel and Spoon in like small venues, like that's one of my all-time experiences. But you could also definitely see like Pitchfork was pretty into Robin when, you know, she released her second album and, you know, started making sort of more intellectually, you know, kind of emotionally interesting, sonically interesting pop. I mean, they were interested in Max Martin, I think, or at least receptive to Max Martin as a producer. But certainly, like, the well, They were definitely dropout. interested in Max Martin. It took a little while for them to figure, yeah. to decide whether they liked Max Martin or not. Yeah, and Max Martin, you know, this very important pop producer, was sort of a significant, I think, like, figure in convincing Pitchfork that, like, pop work could be interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I feel like um, the college dropout was really, I mean, at least I perceived it this way, this early Kanye album. So before the, you know, the sonic experiments of 808s and Heartbreak, before the sort of emotional experiments of my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, you know, Kanye was sort of this figure where it's like, he's a rapper, but he feels different somehow. And in a lot of ways, this was like a dumb realization that happened. Like Kanye never really quite qualified as like a conscious rapper and conscious rap had been around for a long time. Like, But he was, sometimes wore pink polo shirts. Yes, he sometimes wore pink polo shirts. He was like, you know, he was from Chicago in a way that was like a little bit different from like the East-West rivalries of the 90s or the sort of emergence of the Dirty South in the form of Outkast and, you know, all of the other rappers from Atlanta. But Kanye became this sort of like, because he was, it was like rap, but it was different, right? And so it be, he became this sort of bridge figure, I think, for Pitchfork uh, and for some of the other sort of indie music sites. And of course, like hip hop, always had its own thriving music criticism culture, right? I mean, it's not like Vibe and The Source, like, didn't exist. They had been around for, in some cases, like, you know. More. One of the greatest jokes in Office Space is about getting 40 subscriptions to Vibe. And that movie's 1998. Alyssa, I want to I I hop back to something that you, you said, because I think it's interesting and kind of the crux of this whole thing. You said uh, if you could get used to the attitude or come to enjoy it. Yeah. Again, this is, I'm looking at this almost entirely from the outside as somebody who read Pitchfork like four times a year tops. Like the sense I got was that they they took a lot of grief for that attitude and there were, there were people who wanted to change it and make it something else. And I guess my broader question here, and the, the reason we're, we're discussing this on this podcast is if you want a thing to change instead of like being the successful thing that it is, why not just make a new thing? Why why take this successful thing and force it into a different box uh, instead of just, uh, you know, like, again, going and making your own thing or doing doing something different? Um, I do think that there has been sort of the rise of a fan culture that is very oriented towards submission and to sort of 
there's just like a lack of tolerance of dissent in the, you know, like, I don't think, like, Taylor Swift is the last person in the world who sort of needs defending or who, like, even needs good reviews at this point, right? I mean, she's completely fan-proof, and yet, you know, her, her most passionate, least functional fans, you know, really freak out whenever anyone talks about her artistic accomplishments or her music in a way that is sort of less totally oriented towards veneration. And that's true for huge numbers of other fan communities, right? And, like, Taylor Swift is just, like, the Swifties are but one of these communities. They're, like, as fandom has become an identity category, there has been much less interest in sort of arguing about music and much more interest, much greater interest in kind of venerating it. And I think that that cultural impulse is not confined to women at all. I mean, we've all like dealt with people who think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, you know, a like cultural totem that shall not be defiled. But I think that that impulse has become much more culturally widespread. And the difference between something you like and you feel passionate about and that you want to argue about and something where liking it is a source of your identity are just very different lenses on art and seeing the world. And, you know, I think the, I think criticism and cultural conversation have also just moved away from sort of technical explanations or arguments for why something is good. And that was something that I felt like Pitchfork helped me think about how to articulate in criticism, right? Like, I I don't know enough about music to write good music criticism. I just, I don't think I know that. But I feel like being able to explain the why that I like something, why I think it works, you know, what is it that an actor is doing with their face that makes their performance effective or ineffective, um, you know, is something that I really sort of took away from Pitchfork, that, like, the why matters, building the case for something matters. And I think that there are a lot of great critics who are still kind of practicing in that mode. And then again, I think just like culturally, we've collectively moved away from the idea of, you know, to say that if something is really great and special, something else has to suck or at least be not as good. Um, And I think there is less, you know, there's less tolerance for saying that something sucks and less interest in defining why something sucks, if that makes any sense. Sure. Uh, Peter, I want to ask you this because, uh, again, something Alyssa just said was very interesting here. The idea that we've collectively, that, you know, kind of as a mass, and we're talking about the shift of pitchfork from a niche audience to a mass audience here, which changes how the site is perceived, I think, in a certain way, uh, which I think is, which I think is kind of part of the issue here, right? It's, It's not, once, once you get away from being like, the place where you can be a little bit snotty, uh, and that's what you know a smaller number of people are looking for, to a place where you are dictating the taste for the masses. Uh, the masses are going to push back on that in a different way. Or am I am I overreaching here? That's certainly part of it. Pitchfork would have been much less criticized for its tone uh, in all of the things that that means. Uh, for its emphases, for its biases, um, for its gender balance and demographics, if it were much smaller and much less successful. I, I just don't think there's any question about that. But, you know, there there were a bunch of other things that were happening. The music world changed dramatically. When Pitchfork started, it was a world where you bought CDs. 
by the time it was done, Pitchfork was in some ways a guide to the world of streaming, a world of infinite music. Part of what Pitchfork started with was this idea that they were going to tell you what to buy because even the most hardcore, the, even the writers for Pitchfork themselves, although actually once you became a full-time staff writer, this was not true. Um, even the writers for Pitchfork themselves only had a certain amount of money that they could spend on CDs. And I mean, I, I knew guys like this, to be clear, not writers for Pitchfork, but in the 90s who were who would have some crap job making not much money, and somehow or another they found a way to spend literally all of it on new music. That was it. That was the only thing they did. And they just amassed these completely insane CD collections. And the only way that you could defeat that was working in the music industry where you could get everything for free. I guess you could also uh, you could also pirate stuff, and there was a fair amount of that. And so P Pitchfork did sort of, uh, they early on were kind of, uh, a guide to things that you could maybe download from somewhere. We don't know where. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and but then then that in some ways positioned them well to to jump into the world of of streaming and unlimited availability. Uh, but what I was what I was saying earlier was you know I do think something changed. There were a bunch of factors that I think led to Pitchfork kind of contracting and being less of a less of something that was clearly just a huge hit going concern. Um, one is just changes in the, both in music consumption, but in, but also in music tastes and in music recommendations. So, you know, Alyssa talked about kind of the expectations of fans. I think Alyssa, you're totally right. There is a kind of Marvel effect in the world of music fandom right now you know, that we have seen where people don't want something that challenges their preconceptions. They just want to be catered to. And, Pitchfork, even in the moments where I was most frustrated by them, Pitchfork didn't do a lot of that. Or at least I will say Pitchfork Pitchfork was willing to not do that on a reasonably regular basis. And that was always one of the things that I admired about them. But then it's also just that younger people, to the extent that they're listening to music, and it actually seems like it's not quite that they're listening to less, but new music and sort of the hunt for new music is just much less of a part of their life and their identity than it was when I was 19. The recommendation outlets are changing. Spotify, and if you've got Apple or Tidal or whatever, all of the, any of these other streaming services, the homepage of Spotify and the algorithmically recommended stuff that comes to you, that is hugely, hugely valuable. Some of that also gets sold uh, to the record labels. The record labels pay for placement, that sort of thing. Then there's TikTok, which is which is a, I mean, I'm not on TikTok, but my understanding is that a huge amount of sort of music discovery is now happening on TikTok. And TikTok has driven, in some cases, quite old songs to the top of the charts on Spotify. And in that world where where it's not only that you no longer have to make choices about how you're going to spend your money, but also that there are just these, there's a, a, a lot of other recommendation engines that work differently than here's one person working with an editor who has an opinion, which is what Pitchfork was. That's what a that's what a, a music review is, like a movie review. It's one person who's got an opinion. Now there's a you know there's a sort of site ethos, right, and a, a worldview and all of that um, as publications have, but it is ultimately just a, one person's opinion and working within the context of that publication. That is. That's just a harder sell, and that's going to make uh, a music review website something that is going to struggle and going to be less valuable if you're just looking at the bottom line, um, uh, and if that's if that's what your concern is. But 
but the thing that I that I also just wanted to bring up was, you know, I, I we've we've talked uh, about the gender stuff, you know, with Taylor Swift and all of this, and I want to just read something from the New York Times report when Pitchfork was acquired in 2015, where the Condé Nast executive who was in charge of talking about this and bragging about the the acquisition said that Pitchfork brings quote a very passionate audience of millennial males into our roster. I mean, that's as clear as you can get that that was a site where the readership was very, very, very male. And that was when the site was reportedly profitable and successful enough to sell to a big media conglomerate back before that big media conglomerate was having the serious problems that they are having now. That's what they wanted was a big audience of males. And over the last several years, I think there has been a frankly explicit and obvious pushback on that and in an attempt to change that, that I think has probably at least a little bit at the margins. It's maybe not the primary factor because like I said, just the total, the business environment has changed, but I do think there has been an effort to push back on that um, and to change that. And some of which I think is not even, it's not even like this is bad, but it's like, so I'll just read you when you know, features editor Jill Mapes was one of the people who was laid off. Pitchfork did the, these great long form interview features. I mean, like I, I don't, you know, you, features editors never sign their names to works, but like clearly she was a very good editor. And in her, in her, I got fired post, she wrote that glad we could spend that time, the eight years she was there, trying to make it a less dudish place and then griped, well, just for GQ which is a men's brand, of course, to end up at the helm. And I have kind of mixed feelings uh, about that and about that attempt um, for the same reason, frankly, that I laughed for a whole podcast segment a couple of months ago when we talked about the Blade script being a, a movie about three women learning life lessons with Blade relegated to the fourth tier character. Well, it's like... You're making a movie about Blade. It should be about Blade, a, a guy who kills other vampires. He's a half vampire who kills vampires with a sword. Not about women learning life lessons. And Pitchfork was was successful at its at, like at its peak. The the thing that it was most successful at was catering to a a specific type of very nerdy, like very kind of obnoxious, like definitely criticizable, uh, and not uh, and, and not. Um, I don't want to be like these guys were all great and there was nothing like this. Is kind of, I was one. We we were kind of obnoxious. We were kind of difficult to be around. But that was what the site did, and that was what made the site successful. And to really to 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 change that in an in an environment where the business case is also getting much more difficult, I I think that's it. Probably played at least a small role at the margins in what in this site becoming less of a less influential and less of a cultural force because you could have I, I think they probably could have ridden out their young millennial audience into middle age uh, uh, your young millennial male audience into into middle age a little bit more in some ways at like Rolling Stone did even through Rolling Stone's decline we're going long here uh, so we, we we got we got to wrap we got to wrap this up but I could Alyssa, do 20 more minutes just by myself but, but uh, Alyssa, I, I, I do want to I, I just want to I just want to highlight this because when, when Peter sent us that quote in the group text 
And my response to that was, yeah, I saw it. And it made me like 80% less sympathetic to everybody yeah. who's getting fired from, from Pitchfork, which like is maybe not fair, is maybe not fair because it does suck. There's as somebody who's lived through a couple layoffs. It sucks. And it's very rarely your fault specifically and like whatever. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like you, you went to a place, you tried to undercut the 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 audience that existed for that place, and you're like, well, I did this, and now it doesn't exist anymore. Oh well, like I'm sorry, like can't there's there's a there's a cause and effect here, it, yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right, and you know, I think back to my sort of like 19 year old self, feeling both like really really intimidated by Pitchfork, but also just like really intrigued and. Having this sense of, you know, being young and feeling like the world was opening up in big ways and my ability to, like, read a Pitchfork review and be like, I get that, felt like, you know, that didn't feel intimidating or off-putting. It felt like a sign that I was getting access to something new. And I also just think there's a certain amount of irony in the fact that this is happening to Pitchfork, both the sort of change in its vibe and its, you know, sort of decimation right now at a moment when women are making a lot of the kind of music that Pitchfork championed in a big way, right? I mean, Pitchfork is like splashing out seven and eights on like Olivia Rodrigo albums, like a former like Disney star who really likes like Slater Kinney and sort of indie rock and is making excellent albums in that vein when like three women are touring as boy genius and Slater Kinney is out with a new album. And, you know, in a way, the music that Pitchfork championed kind of feels like it's coming back around in some ways and coming back around and being played you know, not necessarily by, like, the guys in the strokes, but by, like, young and middle-aged women. And I'm really curious how the pitchfork of 2000 would have responded to some of those albums. Um, or, the like, 2004, because I would have liked to read, you know. I, I want to read, the re like, the pitchfork review of the album, you know, Olivia Rodrigo makes when she, like, has a baby and is into the, like, blood and guts and, like, craziness of that first year, you know? And frankly, a lot of that music is happening not directly and specifically and only because of Pitchfork, but because those young women uh, artists grew up in an environment that was curated and influenced by Pitchfork. And, and they did the thing that Sonny asked at the beginning, why don't you just make your own thing? And what Lucy Dacus did was make her own thing. And it's great. And what all the the folks in you know Phoebe Bridgers and Julian Baker and all the folks in Boy uh, Genius did was make their own thing, and it's it's in some ways indebted to the Strokes, and in some ways totally not right. It's like in some ways indebted to Dave Bazan and Pedro the Lion, and totally not. I've never interviewed them about this or anything, but like very clearly, they're also big Fiona Apple fans. And I will say that like Pitchfork was a big part of the reason that that a bunch of dudes got into Fiona Apple because they heard about the John Bryan, uh, the the legendary John Bryan version of her second album that was not released. And anyway, this is a whole bunch of music trivia here. But part of the thing that happened was that Pitchfork created an environment where those artists could flourish and had uh, and, and could do their own thing in a different way. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that Pitchfork has been gutted and moved to GQ? Peter? Man, I don't know about the finances or management decision behind it, but it sucks. Alyssa? It's controversial. 
I don't actually have an opinion. Once again, I'm not a reader, so I, I'm going to defer to you guys on this one. Uh, I'll, I'll allow it's a controversy if you if you say it is. All right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode singing the praises of Paul Giamatti, who looks like a serious contender for a Best Actor trophy at this year's Oscars. We're taping this on Monday, so hopefully he gets a nomination. I don't know. We'll see. Is he due? Speaking of which, on to the main event. The Holdovers. Director Alexander Payne reunites with Paul Giamatti for this coming-of-age slash crotchety old dog learns some new tricks. Pictures set in the snowy wastes of a New England prep school. Uh, Giamatti stars as Paul Hunnam, a professor of ancient history who delights in confounding his young charges with excess work and harsh grading. Uh, That combination has gotten him into trouble with the administration, which is passively aggressively punishing him by making him uh, the ward of the titular holdovers, the students who are stuck at the prep school over the winter break. One of these students is Angus Tully, played by newcomer Dominic Sessa. He had plans to go to St. Kitt, but those plans were foiled after his mother and her new husband decide to use the weeks uh, for a delayed honeymoon. Uh, After the rest of the holdovers jet off to a ski resort, Angus, Mr. Hunnam, and the school cook, Mary Lamb, who's played by Divine Joy Randolph, uh, are left to their own devices in the school and its environs, and then in Boston, where the teacher and student go on a a quote-unquote field trip. The holdovers feels a little like a mashup of two previous pain pictures, Sideways and Election, albeit one that very much smooths away the jagged edges of those pictures. Uh, Mr. Hunnam and Angus are both revealed to have hearts of gold, in the end. They're willing to put in the effort to aid each other, uh, even to their own detriment. Contrast that to the irascible lead of Sideways with his hatred of Merlot or the toxic relationship between Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon's characters in Election. Uh, we'll get into spoilers in a sec here. So, you know, hang up now if that's a, if, if you were to hit the pause button. But I think it's interesting to compare and contrast where uh, Giamatti's Hunnam and Broderick's Jim McAllister wind up. We'll do that in a bit. Um, In terms of mood, The Holdovers uh, kind of ostentatiously places itself in the world of the late 1960s or early 1970s, not just by its choice of setting, but also its choice of logos and title cards and music. It has a very calculated throwback vibe, announcing early on that this is the sort of movie Hollywood used to make for a brief shining moment. It is character-driven and talky and concerned with issues of race and class and social status, but also very spiky and funny. Um, It is very much an actor's showcase. There's a reason that Giamatti and Randolph are both frontrunners in their respective categories. I think she has got a pretty good shot at supporting actress, and Giamatti is, uh, I I don't know, it's two-man race with him and Killian Murphy at this point for best actor. Um, The biggest complaint about The Holdovers, uh, from from my point of view, is that it's almost sitcom-y in its constant desire to create setups and punchlines within the plot of the film, leading to an episodic quality as Hunnam and Tully move from point to point during their time together. Just for instance, there's this one sequence uh, where Angus is interrupted by Hunnam as he tries to get a hotel room in Boston, which leads Angus to kind of freak out and run all over the the, the building, and Hunnam is chasing him, and they're having this, you know, funny little chase, and you, you gotta catch me, and then Angus jumps in the in, into a pit in the, the gym, and he dislocates his shoulder, and they go to the ER, and the two bond over their shared predicament and come to understand a little bit more about each other. This happens kind of over and over again. Um, By film's end, everyone ends up learning a valuable lesson and they can all go on their way happy that most everything has been resolved. It's nice. This is a very nice movie, but it is a little too neat for my taste. Still, I I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, Alyssa, what did you make of The Holdovers? I loved this movie. I'm so sorry I didn't see it when it came out originally, because it absolutely would have made my top 10. I just, 
loved it. And I don't have a problem with the episodic quality of the movie that you described in part because I think like it's about this sort of long, loose period of time. And so it is about sort of this series of interactions that happen rather than the sort of loose stuff in the middle. It's such a sharply, it's like a very funny movie, right? Um, in in the, Not just in the sense that it has these sort of setups, but it has these excellent bits of you know, character-specific dialogue writing that are very funny on their own and are very funny together. I was actually just talking to my dad, um, who I don't mention on this podcast very much about the holdovers, which he also loved. And he called, he was talking about how much he liked the scene on sort of their last night in Boston when Angus just really wants Cherry's Jubilee for dessert. And you have these two sort of separate lines and reactions. The waitress at the restaurant won't serve it to him because he's underage and she won't make an exception. And Giamatti's character, who is, you know, tends towards both like a combination of like bluster and fluster, and who just has spent his entire life within the confines of this boarding school and doesn't know how to talk to actual humans, and so tends to speak in this way that sounds exaggerated and ridiculous, you know, splutters at this waitress, like, what kind of fascist hash factory are you running here? (laughs) And... Mary, who is used to being sort of condescended to because that's what she, like, she's professionally condescended to, right? She runs the cafeteria of this boys' school. They think she's not a very good cook. They're kind of, they're awful to her. She asks very calmly if she can get, like, the ingredients for Cherry's Jubilee. And then when the waitress goes off to get them, goes, bitch. And it's just, like, it's sort of sh- a little bit shockingly nasty, but also, like, you've come to know her as this sort of acute judge of character. <laughs> But also you see the way that she's sort of squarely on Angus and Mr. Hunnam's team, right? And just like the little moments like that are so perfectly written and acted that I adored it moment to moment. But also, even though it's a nice movie, it's actually not a movie where everything turns out okay, right? Mr. Hunnam sacrifices not just his career, but like the place where he lives his entire life so Angus can stay in school And hopefully he, like, hopes that Angus won't get himself thrown out. But, you know, I don't know that Mr. Hunnam's going to be okay. We don't know that he's going to be okay. You hope he's going to be okay. But he doesn't have another job. He has, like, an idea of a monograph that he might write and some travel he might do. Like, Mary has a plan to start saving for her, you know, niece or nephew's college education. But, like, her son is dead. He's gone. He is not coming back. And she has locked herself into this school where, you know, she is not treated particularly well or kindly by the people who live there in order to sort of achieve that financial stability. Um, And now her son is dead. Like, this thing she shaped her life around. She, you know, accepts being demeaned on a certain level, and she's finding, like, a lesser substitute for that affection and that commitment. But, like, the movie is nice, but things aren't necessarily okay. I, I totally see what you're saying. I mean, I, I and I agree with that to a certain extent, though I do think that the way that Hunnam is shown leaving the school is, it is portrayed as kind of, like, the kick in the pants he needs to get on with his yeah, life. I agree that it's, like, it's necessary, but it's not necessarily, like, a guarantee that things are going to be fine. I mean, I also appreciate, like, they, you know, there's a moment where it seems like it's setting him up for this, like, redemptive romance with another staff member at the school. And, like, that doesn't happen, right? It's, like, yeah. very much clear that it's not going to happen, that she's, like, with someone else. And, like, in fact, her niceness to him is as far as it's going to go. 
no, I just, as I was watching this movie, I noticed myself smiling a lot. And I can't tell you how long it's been since I've sat in the movie and been like, oh, wow, like my mouth is going up at the corners, right? And just, I just, I both felt happy and noticed that the movie was making me happy as I watched it. And I think Dominic Sessa's really great in this, right? I mean, he's a, again, like, this is a first-time actor. He's in basically every scene in the movie, not 100% of them, but most of them. Um, And he's just, he's very, he feels like totally age-appropriate. I mean, he was cast in sort of an open casting call at Deerfield Academy, which is, you know, a school that is very much like Barton. And I think he's 20. And, you know, he looks like someone who has not entirely finished growing or figured out his look or even figured out how he works in his own body. But... Yeah, I mean, he's just, you know, sort of wonderfully sensitive and open and not mannered. You know, he just, he has no polish in a way that's completely perfect for the role. Yeah, I man, it just got me. I loved it. Peter, what did you make of The Holdovers? I liked it quite a bit, but I also, like you, Sonny, uh, thought that especially in comparison to Alexander Payne's older stuff, it's a little soft, it's a little nice. In some ways, that's part of the appeal. Um in, in a way, this movie reminded me, actually, of another nice movie that we saw this year, American Fiction. And American Fiction felt very Payne-esque to me when I watched it, and, uh, especially a week or two after having seen The Holdovers. I feel like these movies are kind of a kind of a pair, and, and they make a great double feature in a bunch of ways. And Jeffrey Wright is was in some ways playing an Alexander Payne-type character. Well, they're uh, also it, about... Boston and yes. specifically Black Boston yes. in certain ways. Um, I mean, this is just like a very physically lovely Boston movie, which, um, you know, I'm a sucker for Boston movies. I thought American fiction worked in the particulars less well than this movie does, um, or at least substantially less well in like one of half of the movie than this movie does in all of its parts, which is probably why I was a little bit more sour on it. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I guess I sort of thought that uh, American fiction was a little bit more conceptually daring, and that's why I was a little more up on it than this one. The Holdovers The Holdovers is a very nicely made movie. It's the kind of movie that I wish there were more of. I would be happy to watch 20 of these a year, uh, not The Holdovers 20 times, but 20 of these a year. Um, uh, but it's not a movie that I think I'm going to revisit in at the same sort of volume and frequency that I did Sideways, which is a movie I watched quite a few times during a period in my life and which was uh I don't know if I want to say it was super influential on me but it was at least a little bit influential uh, in that like it kind of made me want to be a wine nerd and uh, I, I did not become a wine nerd to be clear I tried and failed and uh as I watched this movie and I, the end of it, it the end of this movie has Paul Giamatti stealing the precious bottle of cognac from his jackass jerk boss character, right? And he gets away with it. He takes that sip in the car and spits it out. In some ways, this is a reflection of the movie is sort of like, yeah, he's a little bit of a sad sack with a drinking problem, but it is also a victory. It is a it is a victory over the bad guys, the the the, the people who have put him down. He is going to find his own path and pave his own way. And you think about the alcohol finale of of Sideways, in which Paul Giamatti is sitting by himself in like a diner, drinking his most precious bottle out of a styrofoam cup in abject depression. And that to me is part of what made Sideways so, so powerful is 
the willingness to make its characters out to be like, I think I, I found them very appealing, but unlikable in a traditional sense. I don't mean I found them unlikable. I mean, it, it doesn't follow the rules of like, these are what, what characters who win and succeed in life and are like the, the, the audience is rooting for them. That's, it didn't follow the rules of that. It was like, these, these people are, are, are messed up. And Paul Giamatti's character is a difficult, broken person. And that's what that movie was about. And this movie is about that too, but it it goes easy on him in a way that is 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 very appealing in a certain way. But also, I felt like a little bit, just a, like uh, Alexander Payne's going soft a little bit. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the short film series, uh, Paris Jetami, which has a bunch of sort of indie-ish directors from the late 90s, early aughts, all of which whom are making movies, short films set in Paris. Alexander Payne has a movie in, a short film in that, that is, I don't think you could make it today. It is almost shockingly mean about an overweight, single, sad woman. I mean, there's no other way to put it. She is a sad person. She is sad about herself and trying not to recognize, like trying not to admit that she's sad, bravely going to Paris on a vacation by herself. And the whole thing is about just the the deep sadness in her heart. And the movie is not, it's a little, it's kind of mean at times, but it's it's not about like, actually, this is so brave. It's like in some ways it is brave, but like life is hard and this is, this sucks. Like n- no one wants you and you are having to deal with that. And... There's just an edge to it. There's a kind of a, that I appreciated, not because it was mean, maybe because it was, let's bring this back to Pitchfork. Maybe I like mean stuff sometimes and I I shouldn't. Um, And maybe this is a character flaw. Maybe my appreciation of old Alexander Payne is a character flaw and I'm a mean person. I don't, don't, I don't know. Don't mean shame yourself here. But I was looking for that in this movie and I felt like at the opportunities it had to, to go all the way, it always pulled back at the end. And that's that. That's appealing to us in a certain way. It's probably more commercial. And also, as you get older, man, I I am embarrassed a little bit by the fact that I liked Pitchfork for being mean in 1999. That was uh, I, you don't need to be that way. Like that's not that's not right. Like this isn't you don't need to be that way. But maybe maybe I still want Alexander Payne to be that way. Again, I just like I compare the end of this movie to the end of Election mentally when I think about both of them, because it, it's fascinating to look at the end of election where like Matthew Broderick has been humiliated. He has to leave his school. Like, it's not like he gets to quietly leave. And he, he's like humiliated. He has to leave town entirely. He goes, gets a new job somewhere else. And he seems to be happier in this new job. And then he sees his nemesis walking around the streets of DC as like the junior apparatchik for Senator. She's clearly like going to be a influential figure in Washington, D.C. and making decisions and it drives him bonkers and he chucks something at the car. I forget, like a drink or something at the car. And like the ending to that movie, I think, kind of better reflects the natural state of frustration that a certain type of professorial figure ends up having with the kids that don't conform to their expectations and still go on to succeed and surpass them. Does that make sense? I, I like. I just. I feel like it's more more honest. So his older movies, in some ways, were about how people like this, these principled, very smart, prickly people, they kind of lose in the world, like they, they don't win. And here, Paul Giamatti's character, you can say 
that he's not being sort of let into a world of 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 great victory and success. This certainly isn't like a, a kind of classic defeat the villain movie. At the same time, he's losing in a way that has a victory attached to it. There's he's getting something out of it, and the bad guys are being put in their place a little bit, at least with regards to that bottle of cognac. And that's I don't know. I. I'm focusing on this because Alyssa was mostly because Alyssa said all the things that were great about this movie. And I basically agree with Alyssa that, uh, about all the things that are great about this movie. It's a very enjoyable film. I would watch many more uh, exactly of this quality and of this sort of uh, mean and vibe and, and all of that. And Paul Giamatti in particular, just like I can just watch him on screen kind of doing anything forever. Uh, but I do think about it in comparison to the older Alexander Payne films. And I don't think it quite suits me and my taste quite as much. Alyssa, does anybody have a better face than Paul Giamatti? For the specific things that Paul Giamatti does, no. But we can discuss that in the bonus. <laughs> we'll discuss that in the bonus. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the holdovers? Peter? Thumbs up. Alyssa? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. It's fun. It's very nice. I enjoyed it. All right, that is it for today's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode on Paul Giamatti and his wonderful rubber face. Tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. 